0: You are listening to a Sustainable World Radio podcast. Sustainable World Radio brings you in-depth interviews, news, and commentary about positive solutions to environmental challenges, solutions that adhere to the permaculture ethics of earth care, people care, fair share. Are you interested in learning more about permaculture projects around the globe? How to plant a food forest? Restorative design or ethnobotany? Then stay tuned for Sustainable World Radio. I'm your host and producer, Jill Cloutier. My guest today is Michael Judd, author, permaculture designer, and founder of Ecologia edible and ecological landscape design michael is the author of the book edible landscaping with the permaculture twist and michael you've been really busy lately you're also recently in the process of starting a nursery in your hometown of i think i think you're in frederick maryland right
1: Yep, yeah, we're in the foothills of appalachia here. Uh,
0: gorgeous There is a former maryland resident i grew up there I, it's very beautiful there Um, Today, we're going to be talking with Michael about food forests and some uncommon fruits and plants to include in your food forest design. So welcome to the show again, Michael Judd.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So, you know, maintaining a food forest sounds very daunting. Is creating and taking care of a backyard or front yard food forest, is it really a high maintenance project? How has it been for you?
1: It has been fun and mostly straightforward, in the sense that I've approached it in what I sort of call a a patch method you know one little area at a time uh, taking bites out of you know the whole concept of a food forest which yes can be can be a little overwhelming when you read about it or hear about it uh, being uh, a reflection of a healthy natural forest Um, taking that observation of a natural pattern happening in a forest and then imitating that in your landscape. I mean, that sounds groovy, but it's like, whoa, you know, that's, (laughs) that's, uh, I'm just trying to, you know, get a a tree and some plants in the ground here. I'm just trying to get started. So what I like to do is simplify it into a patch method, which can be simple um, eight by eight space, really can be any shape. So you don't have to have a large area to do a food forest. Uh, and I think another common misconception uh, from the term is that you're growing food in the forest. So what we're doing with Food Forest is growing food like the forest, uh, but we're growing it ideally out in full sun where we can get the most production from our main fruit or nut tree or bush, whatever we're focusing on as a main producer. And this usually comes down to you know, someone being interested in planting uh, their first fruit tree. So let's say you're going to plant an Asian persimmon. And instead of going out and digging a hole in the middle of your lawn, uh, planting <laughs> the your the tree. The lone tree. The <laughs> lone tree. Yes, we've seen it in the, in the sea of grass with the, the marauding weed whackers, <laughs> and lawnmowers, uh, the poor things. Uh, so instead of doing just that, and if that tree's lucky maybe it gets a little ring of mulch, um, you know, at the same time, go ahead and create a zone that will that will be able to support that tree. So by that, what I usually do in a year in advance, ideally, is I'll look at the site where I want to plant that Asian persimmon and I'll begin prepping it, whether it's just straight grass at the time, weeds, really whatever the condition is. Usually it's a poor condition. I think in most cases uh, our soils have been depleted and we're usually working with poor soil. So we need to build that up. And to do that, I quite simply layer. uh, It's almost like a lasagna gardening. In permaculture, it's referred to as sheet mulch. Uh, Really, it's just layering uh, organic matter that will break down into soil uh, over time. So there's many different recipes. Uh, The one I put in my book, which I think is quite quite straightforward, is throwing down um, compost. Uh, We have a lot of municipal compost uh, we call leaf grow we buy by the yard. Um, So I'll throw down about a yard. This could also be manure. It could even be fresh manure since you're not going to be planting in it um, for a full season. So you can get fresh manure, throw down two or three inches on that area, and then I like to come along and throw newspaper uh, and or cardboard on top of that compost or manure. And what that does is it it stops the grass, whatever's under that, really going crazy and growing strong because you've just fertilized it. Uh, It also draws up worms. Uh, It also draws up the critters and traps moisture. So all of a sudden, just by chucking down some, some compost and some newspaper and cardboard, basically organic matter, you're drawing up all this soil life to till through your soil for you, which is probably hard and compacted. And release their castings and, and you know their nutrients for you at the same time. They're pulling that material down into the soil, so they're cultivating the soil for you. Whereas you know you still haven't grabbed a shovel and your back's not hurting, you have just layered the ground. Um, and then on top of that, I uh, Mike's deluxe sheep mulch recipe is putting an additional like four inches of wood chips on top of that, uh, and then generously covering that with straw. Now, what that does is it buys you another year of soil building. So during that first growing season, that first summer, uh, that compost and newspaper and cardboard are going to start to break down and become the soil. Then that second year, the wood chips have, have accumulated ambient fungi, To begin breaking the wood chips down to continue that cycle in the next stride as that compost and manure break down the wood chips are then ready to feed the the soil continuously and they also act like a sponge and hold moisture so again that sounds a little complicated but you've just created this lasagna layering on top of your grass that in one go will begin building soil for you and holding moisture and creating nutrients um, for your asian persimmon to come um, for maybe about half an hour's worth of work and then patience, then you wait. And then when you come back and you open that up, it is rich, it's dark, it's full of fungi, uh, it's it's teeming with life and nutrients. And then when you plant your Asian persimmon in there, oh man, is it ever happy? It's got everything it needs um, to begin you know, strongly as compared to running out, digging a hole in your grass and sticking that tree in and maybe mulching around it it's going to struggle, and you're going to have to be the one who keeps inputting for it. Whereas by creating this patch, you've sort of set the stage um, for the natural systems to feed it.
0: So this is more of a long-term way to prepare your soil. It sounds a lot easier than taking out your lawn manually, (laughs) like a lot of people in California have been doing. How long, I think you said, is it a year? you, You let it sit for a year, and then you can plant into it? Or can you dig holes? I've, I've done that before, where you dig holes in the mulch and then plant things.
1: Yes, yes. So, so that that's the, the ideal. Way? <laughs> that is the ideal. Um, and even myself, I get excited. You know, I'll, 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 I'll get trees I hadn't planned on, got, on getting and um, I'll run out there and yes, I'll do it. And then I'll sheet mulch around it. So you can also retrofit an existing tree with a sheet mulch uh, at whatever age it is. You know, you could do this on a mature tree that you want to revive. Uh, If you have a tree that's three years old in the ground, uh, you can go ahead and retrofit the sheet mulch around it, and it will begin that process of benefiting the soil.
0: So you're Um, laying out food basically for the microbes.
1: Yes, for the mycelium, the microbes, the worms. uh, If you've ever sort of left a, a piece of cardboard outside for a while or a piece of plywood, and you come back a year later and you pick it up, and it's just it's just teeming with life under there and critters and it's it's black and moist. That's basically what you're doing is you're creating this habitat and food source um, for everything that feeds our trees and our plants. Um, so it, it really you don't necessarily have to understand all the all the ecology of it, all the chemistry. Um, you know, it's it's sort of just composting in place. And and these patches can be planted with anything you would like. You know, that's a great way to start uh, a, a pumpkin patch. That's a great place to come and plant your lilac bush, your rose bush, um, you know, whatever it is, you are creating a, a healthy uh, soil that also has a lot of water retention. So it's nice in the sense that when you go through the drought, it's going to be, it's going to have a lot of available moisture. So, you know, chances are you will you will not have to water or you will reduce your watering dramatically. And as water moves across the landscape, when it hits these patches, they act like sponges too. So they suck up the water and they hold it. And that's why I find doing that four inches of wood chips really helps uh, because it extends. If you do just compost and newspaper and straw, then that's gonna last one full season, but then it's going to expire. You know, mm-hmm. the food availability and the organic matter are going to turn into soil, which is great. Um, but then you've got to feed it again. You're gonna to have to come back and feed that for a couple of years until everything gets established. Whereas when I do the wood chips in there, I'm setting two to three years of soil building in one go. Um so it's a little it's an extra step, but those wood chips add uh, a really nice extra dimension and they bring in much more fungi which you know most tree species have, have a stronger affiliation with than you know, a strongly bacterial soil.
0: And you also, in, in your book, um, recommend, and this might be for people who have more experience, but inoculating your wood chips, that layer, with garden giant mushrooms.
1: Yes, the stropharia, the wine cap mushroom, which, uh, which is delicious and very productive. Um, and it's a terrestrial uh, fungi. So it'll move along the organic matter in your landscape. So, yes, it's a, a food forest patch is a great place to start. If you do in purposely inoculate your wood chips, just make sure there's lots of straw and moisture for it to get started. Uh, I find once the wine cap is established in your landscape, it will just spread everywhere as long as you've got organic matter and decent moisture. So I find them popping up everywhere now on my landscape, which is wonderful. You know, I did a couple initial inoculations and now they're just everywhere. They're a really hardy fungi and very tasty. They, uh, they have a very nice sort of meaty, nutty flavor to them.
0: And you want newer wood chips, right, if you're going to do that?
1: Ideally, yes, it would be a majority of hardwood uh, wood chips. Um, Harvested ideally within maybe the last six weeks of being chipped. Unless it's winter time, they were chipped. Then they'd be fine to begin inoculating in the spring. Here on the the, the Mid Atlantic, I usually start inoculating mine in late March, early April, um, and then I'll sometimes get my first flush of mushrooms, you know, late that fall. But then certainly the following years, uh, they they really begin to produce, and you have to keep them fed. So you've got to continually put that organic matter in there for them. Um, or they'll begin spreading and sporulating around your landscape and find organic matter themselves. And, and they do that huge benefit. They're a very strong mycelium. They're very strong fungi. So they're, they're bringing in all those benefits to the rest of your landscape that, you know, they, when they're symbiotic with the plants in your landscape and the soil, they're pulling in more nutrients for your plants. So they're boosting the overall health. Of whatever you have planting and probably your neighbor's landscape too. Uh, <laughs> so it's really something you want to propagate and spread whether you eat mushrooms or not. Uh, you know, it's a, it's one of those sort of keystone species in a healthy landscape, a food forest, a garden. Um, I love having them all over the place. And yes, I don't eat, you know, maybe even a quarter of them. There's so many.
0: Wow, that's so great. Yeah. So you're growing food and fertilizer at the same time.
1: Exactly.
0: I recently moved and our yard is a weed forest so do you think and it's the type of weeds that bite you <laughs> you know the kind of oh like foxtails it's not pleasant walking around barefoot um, would you recommend sheet mulching for people who have that problem where the soil I know it's good because it's the feeling of it's good but it's just right now very dry because of the California drought and yeah. then just weed city
1: Yes. I, you know, unless you're wanting lawn or an mm-hmm. open space for some function, I would sheet mulch everything everywhere. If if your intention is to, you know, plant it, um, you know, with whatever you're looking for, that, that would not necessarily be grass. Uh, and even grass might eventually establish it, if that's what you would like. Uh, and and yeah, sheet mulching is is can can be varied. You know, there's a lot of different recipes. I'm a big fan of wood chips in general. And I find that if I can get enough wood chips, sometimes I will just dump straight wood chips a good six to eight inches on an area. And then uh if I have the straw, I will cover the wood chips with straw to speed up its decomposition. Because if you know, if you leave a pile of wood chips in the full sun, it really just kinda sits there. If you put that pile of wood chips into the shade, boom, it breaks down quickly. Uh, it's that—that's the moisture and the fungi combining and turning that back into rich soil. So if you have wood chips and you can cover them generously with straw, cardboard, what have you, um, that begins that breakdown process quicker. And I've also learned from doing lots of different types of patches that if I can leave just thick wood chips on top that I know are not are not are not necessarily going to break down very quickly, I find that is a hard surface for a lot of weeds and seeds to get a foothold in. So that's something I've evolved from learning from doing all this. Because when I do my food force patches and, you know, I've got all those layers in there and I've got straw on top and it's breaking down nicely, all of a sudden I've also created a really nice spot for whatever to grow. So with that in mind, there's a couple of things. Usually I, I jump in there and start to get things covering that ground. I try to get ground covers uh, onto my patches quickly, whether that's strawberries, uh, whether it's a running comfrey, um, sometimes St. John's wort. I like it's very attractive as well, and so I'll try to get that covered so that I'm not out there weeding or you know having to deal with everything that's landing on my patches. While my main fruit producer, that Asian persimmon, let's say, gets established and begins to sort of colonize and shade that area, I'll of course also start putting in that patch area around the edges. I'll put in pollinators. I'll put in some echinacea. I'll put in yarrow. I'll put in um, cut and you know cut and drop type plants like comfrey or um, horseradish. I'll also put in um, nitrogen fixers in there. Things like lupin, lead plant. um, What's lead plant?
0: That was one I didn't know.
1: Oh, lead plant is 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 a favorite of mine that I discovered through Oikos Tree Crops, which is a really interesting nursery uh, in the Midwest. It's O-I-K-O-S. Oikos Tree Crops. And that's one of their plants that they offer. They definitely have a permaculture theme to their nursery. He does a lot of uh, nuts and a lot of uh, very resilient type fruits. And one of the plants I got from him was lead plant, and it's a prairie um, nitrogen fixer from the legume family. And I stuck it out in my landscape here, and it has gone crazy. Um, It it becomes a fast-established woody perennial um, that is prolific in its growth and in putting out these large flowers, which becomes this amazing pollinator. Uh, the flowers almost resemble the butterfly, uh, butterfly bush, and the deer don't eat it. So we have we have a lot of deer, and so what I you know my landscapes have to be resilient uh, or designed to exclude deer from certain areas. The lead plant's wonderful. I put it, you know, now between my pawpaws and my other fruit trees, and I can come in and chop and drop it um, two, three times a season so that it doesn't outgrow the space and the, and the trees I've planted next to it. And when I come and I chop and drop, you know, whether that's with pruners, machete, uh, when I chop and drop, I'm dropping mulch. But at the same time, the corresponding roots underground of the lead plant, so when I chop a branch off the lead plant, the corresponding roots underneath, which are holding the nitrogen nodules, which they fixate through the air, so when I chop and drop, those roots underground die and release nitrogen at the same time to the surrounding plants. Now. The nitrogen is also accessible to those plants even when those roots are still living, but it's an extra shot when you chop and drop and release that. So I can go through an acre of a food forest, and I can chop and drop within 45 minutes or an hour, and I will have mulched and fertilized my entire system. And I'm, you know, I'm back swinging the hammock.
0: That's a, that's incredible. So I'm going to look that plant up. I've never heard of it.
1: It's gorgeous. I love it. And it takes easy from cuttings. Uh, it's almost like a fig or an elderberry where you can just, you know, cut it and stick it in the ground and it re-sprouts. It's a wonderful eely.
0: So this gets us now into, Michael, the idea of pl- planting guilds. And can you tell listeners what a guild is and some of the benefits of, of them?
1: Guilds, guilds uh, is a permaculture term uh, basically for companion planting, um, but it also goes beyond just the plants. It sort of is a small ecosystem that gets created. So going back to the idea of a patch. <clears throat> so we're creating a patch. And a patch can be any size, any shape. A food forest has no set definition. F- the concept of a food forest is something that, you know, that we are all creating as we experiment with it right now. It has a long tradition in the tropics where they just naturally occur. Um so here in the temperate zones, Dave Jackie and others who are researching and sharing that information uh in England it's been going on for a while. Uh, but really it's 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 very malleable in the sense that, you know, what we decide to experiment with and do is really what it's all about. So that's an encouragement to everybody uh to not feel daunted that you have to understand a certain science here. Uh, there are some good outlines to follow, but really, it's a go-for-it situation. <laughs> Observe, um, change, learn, fail, adjust, uh, and it's a, it's just a wonderful um, way of gardening and growing. Uh, that that feeds also the soul because uh, I love being out of my food forest. There's so many different interactions and things going on. It's this almost this Alice in Wonderland, you know, type experience.
0: It's enchanting. So would you say that the guilds can also, it's almost like, um, you know how they say some plants get along well and others don't so much in the garden? Is it similar to that? Yes.
1: Yes, um now, with a guild, if we're talking about a food forest um you know establishment and a patch, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about, where I would plant around that 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 fruit tree, I would plant pollinators, things that would draw in, basically creating this little ecosystem that supports that main producer for you. Uh, or that that main tree, or that main medicinal bush, or whatever it is that you're wanting to focus on as your main producer, you want to create a little ecosystem for it so that you 're not having to run out there and put input so you know the American landscape, the general American landscape, you know people are running to the nursery they're buying all this bagged goods they're going out there, you know they're feeding their trees they're watering their trees, they're putting all this energy into their landscape. Whereas the concept in the food forest and creating a guild is that you're going to establish this little ecosystem for that tree up front so that it is then supported um, you know, by itself and, and in many ways much better than you ever could. Um, so a guild is, yes, is thinking about what that tree needs. Okay, that tree is ideally probably going to want some increased pollination. So you're going to want to put in things that draw in more pollinators. Ideally, those pollinators are aligned with the same flowering period as your tree. Or, you know, put in, like, like for example, in our landscape, at the same time, we have pawpaws flowering, we have gummies flowering, and we have um, autumn olive and currants all flowering at the same time. So I'm like, okay, I'm observing that and I'm thinking, okay, well, I definitely want to group these together in the same zone um, so that I'm increasing my my pollinators and I'm making sure that I'm getting things spread around as much as possible. Mind you, the pawpaws uh, are mostly pollinated by flies um, but still, it just creates that, generates that activity. So in your guild for a fruit tree, you're going to want to draw in pollinators. You're going to want to create beneficial insect habitat, which could be things like yarrow, which have a really cool architecture, a plant that uh, is a good sort of safe haven uh, for beneficial spiders and, and you know parasitic wasps, things that are going to help balance the insect ecology for your tree. So you're creating a habitat, you're drawing them in naturally. And then I'll also plant things that will become my mulch in the long run. So yes, up front, I'm putting in materials to jumpstart things, but then I would like to grow what I'll need. So putting in comfrey, this fast-growing, deep-rooted plant that I can three or four times in our season chop and drop, you know, this very nutrient-rich leaf right there on the surface. So I'm growing my mulch where I need it.
0: And it's so medicinal. It's a wonderful um, to make salve out of and face creams, and all sorts of things.
1: It is a wonderful plant that I find many useful, and a wonderful pollinator. It is a great pollinator as well, so it really combines there. And it, for us, it shoots up early in the spring. It begins to flower right away. So it's an instant pollinator, and it's rolling the, the bees into the zone um, where I've got my fruit trees and, and fruit bushes. So it's a winner all around.
0: And then another um, plant that I noticed that you mentioned, which I think the seeds are poisonous, so it may not be good for people with children or pets, but is the blue wild indigo as a nitrogen fixer.
1: Yes, it's what, it's also a very beautiful plant uh, in the landscape. It is not deer resistant. It, it is, uh, is quoted as being deer resistant, and I tell you, our deer love it. At least, you know, while it's small, maybe once it's established, it'll take, you know, the grazing. So I would maybe potentially, you know, give it a head start by by fencing it as it comes up. So that's a, a very attractive point. You know, I love mixing in the beauty with my food forests and my landscapes. And and you can have both. Uh, I know it's not everyone's focus, but um, it, it easily can be. And these so these these guilds are also quite flexible. Uh, the nitrogen fixers, I do like to get in kind of closer to the, the the trunk or the center of the bush, whatever it is that I'm growing in the center of my patch, and then with the intention of that chop and drop and release. Don't be afraid to get close in with those. The other ones, you know, you might want to think about, okay, that tree, when it matures, it's going to have, you know, maybe a 12-foot wide canopy. Some things, if it's inside that canopy, may die out if they need more sun, and that's okay. You know, a food forest patch can keep evolving, and it can keep expanding. So I'll come back to my patches, and I'll add a couple more feet on every year as I have time. I'll come out, and I'll lay down cardboard and straw and just keep extending it. Then also when I'm coming back from some kind of plant fair or a nursery I stopped by and I fell in love with that plant, I didn't plan to, I come home, I have, I have this wonderful planting space for my perennials. So it kind of creates this perennial garden space really for planting whatever you like. I'm a big fan of wormwoods. Uh, I think they're beautiful. The deer don't eat them. They're very medicinal. So, you know, I've got different wormwoods going in different places. You know, I'll get new gooseberry varieties. Um, new currents. And I just have these wonderful ready spaces on the periphery of these food forest patches to begin planting all these different perennials that I come across or think about. So it's kind of like a perennial garden. And yes, and, and then you can mix and match. I will tailor my guilds to be deer resistant. I will tailor them to actually be a sort of a deer fence around a more sensitive tree in the middle. Instead of having to fence it, I'll design my guild. So you can, your guild can swing one way or another. Maybe you want to harvest more medicinals from your companions. So maybe you'll lean more toward motherwort and other type of perennials that also can be chop and drop. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's something you got to get used to and comfortable with, chopping and dropping, you know, some of your beloved plants. But it really does have a long-term benefit. The comfrey is another great example of a medicinal that's also a chop and drop and also a nutrient accumulator.
0: And it volunteers very easily.
1: Yes, well, there's, I have three different types of comfrey. There's the the tall standalone, uh, sort of the, the darker purple flower, probably the most common comfrey. I want to say it's probably a Russian variety. And it's pretty sterile. Uh, the seeds don't really spread, but as soon as you take a little chunk of that root, or or if, or if you take a rototiller across it, yes, you're going to have a, a large area that will always be comfrey. I have another one I have found, and I'm not sure if it's if it's the heat coat variety, but it's about 18 to 20 inches tall, and it's a runner. Uh, and this is my favorite, um, a big pollinator as well. And it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty opportunistic runner. Uh, it's not crazy, crazy, but it'll, it'll colonize a food forest patch area nicely for me. It may exclude a few of the other smaller things in it, but then it's pulling out all the weeds. I can come through and I can chop and drop it, um, you know, three, four times a year. So I'm building that soil. I've got mulch in place. I'm not worried about coming back and having to add more material from the outside to that patch, um, so, if you have space, I like to do that. You know, food forest is going to be different for everybody. I have quite a bit of space. You know, I've got a couple acres, and I have a lot of food forest patches that are all melding together now into the more dynamic concept of what a food forest is without me necessarily having to kill myself really thinking about all of that end game uh, just by spacing my patches out about every 15, 20 feet. And with consideration of whatever that tree in the middle is going to be, mature size, and then I just keep sheet mulching between them. Uh, as I have time in planting. And so it begins to become this mosaic that is largely just the things that I fall in love with, the things that I want to plant, the things that you don't eat. It just, it's you it's constantly evolving and it's showing me what works well, what doesn't. It's this wonderful learning ground. But you know, if you have if you have space for one little patch, um, then you're not necessarily going to want to put an aggressive ground cover in there. You're going to want to maximize that space to get some different fruits out of it. You're probably going to want to put you know, a gooseberry in there, a currant bush, um, you know, you're going to want maybe strawberries, you know, to, to utilize that, that eating space if you're not dealing with deer things. So really, it's very flexible. Um, it's, it's, it's a great guide. It can be forgiving. And, and when it's not, that's just another push in a different direction. Uh, it, 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 one of the things that's possible is potentially to overplant it. Um, you have to realize that a lot of things are going to get shaded out. But when you first start your food forest patch, you definitely have an opportunity of a lot of open sun. So you can start, you can grow a pumpkin in there, you know, while you're waiting for your tree to get, you know, more than four or five feet tall and begin to spread, you know, its branches and leaves. And then you can begin working with things that maybe are more shade tolerant as it grows larger. You can put some more of your woodland medicinal herbs, you know, closer in under that canopy.
0: You have to know where things grow in nature and then apply that to your patch or a food for us
1: yes but again i would not um put that as a prerequisite you know i don't want people to feel daunted like they need to have a large plant knowledge to do this Uh, I think the best teacher is doing it and learning. Uh, Yes, you're going to make mistakes, but that's really, really what's going to cement your understanding of what works or what doesn't. Uh, I I like to treat it as just something that's very exciting, uh, an experiment, rather than thinking, oh, gosh, I better really learn a lot about this before I do it, in in which case you may never do it. Uh, And and if you start learning about it, reading some of the larger books on it, it's like, whoa, I'm, I'm... I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> this sounds great, but where do I even start? And I don't know these plants and you know you you just kind of uh, you know, psych yourself out of it whereas if you're like, "Man, I'm just going to go throw down a bunch of organic matter and and wait and then come back and just, you know, start putting in plants that I love and and ideally ones that grow easily, which which, you know, I think we're going to talk about here shortly, um, you know, start with things that are known to grow easy, you know, have success up front in what you grow." And I think that'll just encourage you to keep going. And then it's a a lifelong, you know, love and relationship.
0: And, you know, one really um, great thing is if you have an existing fruit tree, create a food forest around that existing tree. It'll be a Mm -hmm. lot happier.
1: It will. It'll increase the health of it dramatically. And then also, yes, create more planting space for you.
0: So let's dive into the world of uncommon fruit. (laughs) I love that. Yes. Would you mind starting about with the kiwi, which I thought was interesting? Sure. I'd never heard of hardy kiwi as opposed to the fuzzy kiwi.
1: Right. So it's a cousin of the fuzzy, uh, which is mostly, mostly a subtropical. Though I tell you, uh, some folks I know down here in Virginia, which is zone 8, are, are on a hot, long summer g- successfully growing the fuzzy kiwi. But the hardy kiwi, also known as kiwi berry, can grow way up into Canada, I think, you know, upward of zone four. There's different varieties that will probably do better in that colder climate, and and they grow well down through our zone here and into zone eight. Um, I don't know how far south they may go. I I would venture maybe eight or nine. And they are a wonderful, very ornamental vine. Uh, I think they were actually introduced into the country as an ornamental because they have this beautiful vine, very vigorous. Uh, think wisteria here, you know, very, very, very opportunistic plant here. So it grows and then it has these beautiful red stems on, and these gorgeous shaped leaves that are really not too troubled by disease and insects. So it's this beautiful vine. And then to boot, a female hardy kiwi will, will produce a hundred pounds of kiwi berries. So now these kiwi berries are the size of a really large grape. They are smooth skinned, lime green, and you pop the whole thing in your mouth uh, as compared to the fuzzy, which, you know,
0: (laughs) you don't, you don't want (laughs) to, Unless
1: that's your thing. But it has, when you open a kiwi berry inside, it has that same emerald green Ah. uh, pattern and it has the same flavors. I find them actually to be, uh, much more enjoyable than the fuzzy because they don't really have that, that acidity uh, to them. And, and they're very sweet. I mean, I, I get sugar belly every time I run into a, 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 a fruiting, uh, hardy kiwi bush. And, and, and they glut fruit, like I say, 100 pounds. So it's a very rewarding vine to grow. You have to be ready for it. You have to be ready. <laughs> I, 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 get calls, I get calls all the time. Um, you know, Someone had bought a male and a female because you're going to want generally a male and a female. Of the hardy kiwi, with the exception of a Japanese variety called Asai. Now, I am just starting to grow an Asai, but it is purportedly self-fertile and is also a little smaller. So that is a definite benefit, especially if you have a small space, because these kiwis get large. I've seen I've seen kiwis, you know, run fifty feet and climb a sixty-foot tree. <laughs> yeah, to give you an idea of 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 this. Uh, the the uh, the power of the hardy kiwi so what happens is people go to home depot or somewhere oh hardy kiwi sounds cool they go home and they plant on their chain link fence <laughs> you know in a couple of years it's it's climbing over their neighbor's carport and and going for their house
0: you can't see their house <laughs> right it's a happy With, you know, to be a live plant it sounds maybe, like. maybe maybe
1: it makes a maybe that's a good screen i don't
0: know <laughs> Oh, that sounds great. And delicious too, the kiwi. So that's a really interesting one. Another one that um, you mention a lot in your book is the gooseberry, which I don't think I've ever even tried one. What are those like?
1: Yeah, gooseberry is a bush. It's traditionally and still a very popular fruit in Eastern Europe, Russia, um, even even Europe and England. If you meet folks um, who grew up in Europe and those parts of the world, and you mentioned gooseberries, they will just light up. It's something else to watch, and they'll get this glazed look and excited, you know, look on their face, and, and they'll talk about gooseberry pie and all these things that they remember their grandmother making. And and so it's it has a huge history over there, and it, it began strongly in the States, uh, you know, I think, Around the turn of the last century, in the early 1900s, uh, it was being cultivated. There were cultivars. Um, there's a lot of focus on it, um, and same with the currants, which is a cousin of so the black currant, and the you know the pink and the white. They're all very closely related, and so there was a lot of focus on that. And then there was an association of a a type of fungus, a rust, that was transferring from the gooseberry and the currants to the white pines, which was a major industry at the time. So it was devastating the white pine population. So there was a ban on growing the uh, the gooseberries and the currants. And so it really fell out of popularity and, and favor, uh, you know, as something cultural for the United States. And now there's there's cultivars that are you know that they're they're resistant to that that blight um so it's not really an issue the the white pines are also not you know in many areas not um what they were commercially before so so they're they're having a comeback now now they're welcome in many places um certain states or certain counties within certain states still have not lifted that ban probably just from not focusing on it or realizing that it's not a danger anymore. But so it's having a comeback and they are fantastic fruit, very easy to grow. Um, I would think, you know, certainly in, in, in the parts of, of Northern California, cause they like it. They like it cool though that mind you, we have a very hot, humid summer here and they do well as long as they have lots of mulch. So if you plant them in your food forest patch, you're good uh, or protect them from a the late hot afternoon sun. But the gooseberry bushes, uh, they probably average about three feet tall, three feet wide, are thorny in general, which is great for keeping the deer and other things away from them so I don't have to fence them. And they produce a large grape-sized berry that runs the gamut. I think the traditional ones were were very tart, maybe a little, almost a little sour tart, which, you know, I guess some of the Eastern Europeans love, they love that flower, uh, that flavor. It's kind of like being English and liking Marmite. Um, <laughs> I think it's something you've got to grow up with. <laughs> but those also, when you cook them down and make, you know, gooseberry syrup or a pie, uh, really have a nice, nice strong flavor. But then there's also the other end of the spectrum for gooseberries, which are the dessert ones, which you can eat more fresh out of hand. Uh, and children love them. They, you know, they love the little bit of that tartness and sweetness. And they're very productive bushes. So I, I generally recommend them for ease of growing. Um, deer really don't eat them. They value add nicely as well as some of them being fresh eating. So, uh, and, and I think they're quite ornamental, quite beautiful as well.
0: Yeah. They look really pretty in your book. Another, um, uh, fruit that you mentioned was a Juneberry. Is that something? What, I have never heard of that.
1: It has many names, um, also known as serviceberry, uh, shadblow. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a so-called, uh, native, um, here and in Canada, There's different forms of it. A lot of times you'll see it as a shrub, uh, you know, a woody, multi stem shrub. And it's actually used as an ornamental. So you'll see them outside of Burger King's, you'll see them in a local park. People don't realize it, and it's loaded with very delicious berries. So it puts a berry out generally in June, uh, uh, about the size of a blueberry, often the same color as a blueberry. And it has a blueberry, almond, vanilla flavor to it that is exquisite. Uh, I, I love blueberries, but I'll, I would eat a bowl of Juneberries any day over them. Um, birds love them, too. And so, you know, you don't always get a full harvest, but that's the same case with blueberries. So uh, I like to train them as a single-trunk tree. It becomes a small tree, uh, depending on the variety, but usually around 12, 15 feet tall, with a beautiful, delicate architecture to it. So I I find it to be a beautiful landscape tree. It flowers early. It's one of the first things to flower. It has a beautiful flower on the landscape. It puts out fruit early. And it's in the apple family, the the malice family. So it has this beautiful fall foliage as well. So it's one of these edible landscape all-stars that I love. Uh, and it makes a great infused vodka. Um, oh, man. It really captures the flavor nicely, uh, dangerously. Yeah. Dangerously <laughs> good.
0: Oh, a service berry. Serv- I wonder why it was called service berry. I think part of the
1: history, let's see if I can strum this up here, has something to do with processions. Um, the time that it flowers maybe maybe coincides with some type of Memorial Day in Canada. Uh, it's a little vague, but there's a there's a cultural association there with it being called service berry. Yeah, amelanchier is the Latin word. So there's different types. One that's come on the market, I don't know if it's recent or not, but it's popular, is called regent. Uh, and, and it's it's a bush that only gets about three feet tall. So people are like, ooh, I, I want that. It's berry is not that great, to be honest. Um, I'll put a warning out there. Yeah, it's a little mealy. Um, so it's, 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 Tempting because of the small bush, if, you know, if, if a lot of them will get rather large, they'll probably get, you know, the bush multi-stem shrub will get 10, 12, 15 feet tall, but you'll get lots of berries on that. Um, so I would keep your eyes out in general around parks and places for something that looks attractive like that and has a small berry because a lot of times that's free picking.
0: Yeah, better than Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, stay well, out of there. What about the Goomy?
1: Gumi is another favorite.
0: I just like saying that word. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I know. and Gumi, gumi is, is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite fruits. Uh, it's very medicinal. It's a very easy to grow bush. So it's a good beginner bush. It's a nitrogen fixer. It fixes its own nitrogen. Uh, it's deer resistant. They may nibble it, but it does it does fine. It it's Our gumi bushes are right now almost ripe. They're loaded. I mean, we're talking thousands of these little red berries, beautiful little red berries with like silver specks on them. Uh, and when you eat them, they have this bright, sweet, slightly tart flavor where it's just fun just to eat them, eat them, eat them, eat them, eat them. Um, it makes a really good wine, a good mead, which we found out, a very strong, good one. Um, uh, jams, I mean, you make a juice out of it. It has this, um, it has this beneficial lycopene in it, uh, which is a really strong immune system support, anti-cancer. Um, so it's very medicinal. It's also a huge pollinator. Uh, it, with its cousin, the autumn olive, which has been vilified, unfortunately, which I'm I'm observing the autumn olives and the gummies on our landscapes here, and I'm noticing them to be one of the largest attractants and beneficials for insects, for pollinators, for birds. I mean, we're talking an amazing ecosystem uh, service provider here, and, and people are vilifying it because it's spreading and growing everywhere. Um, but it's filling these niches. It's filling the voids that, that we as humans are creating. And I'm finding it, in, in my observation, to be an amazing species. Uh, and, so the Gumi and the autumn olive are, are cousins. Uh, they flower at the same time, early in the spring, and for a long time. So great. You know, the bees love it. And then the goomies will fruit quickly. They'll come, you know, in early June in our area, whereas the autumn olive, that is the fruiting's delayed all the way until, you know, the autumn, uh, which is amazing that they flower at the same time and then develop their fruit so differently. So you're getting all, you know, if you have them both in your landscape, and there are choice varieties of autumn olives, mind you, that are just exquisite.
0: And what do they take? Are they olives?
1: No, no. Mm -hmm. It's a very small berry, uh, very much like the Gumi. Um... I think the Gumi's definitely got a, a much, much better dessert quality as far as eating them out of hand. That Some of the select autumn olives do it, too. They're more of a round berry, slightly even smaller. And they're great to make juice out of, to make alcohol out of, um, to, you know, juice, you know, make different things with, or just to eat right out of hand. It It's a bush. It's relative of the Russian olive, which also has edible uh, varieties. I should probably point out here, while I'm thinking about it, uh, one of my highest recommendations for learning about all of these and other uncommon fruits is Lee Reich's book. He is one of my gurus when it comes to learning um, about different uh, uncommon fruits. So Lee Reich, uh, it's R-E-I-C-H, one of his books, one of his many books, but one of my favorites, which I always have near to hand, is Uncommon Fruits for Every Garden. In each chapter, it's just an exploration, a really nice, comfortable, entertaining exploration of June berries, of pawpaws, of mulberries, of the persimmons, of the gummies, the autumn olives, uh, the chay fruit, the currants. Um, you know, it's just a fantastic read. Very, you'll learn a lot from reading this book. You'll you'll, you'll feel as if you begin to know uh, something about you know these different fruits, what they like, how to grow them. Um, so I recommend that book for anybody wanting to get into. Growing uh, uncommon fruits, which are also easy to grow fruits. So when I say uncommon, I'm not talking exotic. I'm not talking, you know, something challenging and taking a lot of input and skill. These are very easy to grow, as compared to you know, in our area, it's very challenging to grow peaches, nectarines, many apples, many pears. Uh, it's just there's a lot of challenge to those. But that's you know where people start because they don't they really don't know about other options. So I recommend things like the pawpaws, the persimmons, the gummies to start with. Well, to start and finish with, but they're also very easy to grow. They'll they'll take a lot of abuse. They'll take a lot of less than ideal conditions. They're very disease and insect resistant. Um, so you'll you'll have success uh, much more easily when you start with something. Uh, that that's already pretty resilient.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. Now I'd love for you. I think you even named your nursery after the pawpaw. Can you tell yes. our listeners why do you love this plant?
1: Oh, the pawpaw is gorgeous, and it is a relative of the custard apple from the tropics. You know, I spent I spent you know a better part of two decades living in in rural Latin America in the tropics, and I grew you know all kinds of different types of custard apples. Is
0: that cherimoya? Um,
1: Cherimoya is a subtropical relative too, so that's that's kind of grown maybe in your neck of the woods. Yeah. Uh-huh, my California. favorite fruit. Yes, so it's gorgeous. It's custardy, uh, it's got all these tropical flavors in it, and so does the pawpaw. So it's a relative that when the when the when the um the glaciers receded, you know, what however millions of years ago from the southern part of, of our continent here, the pawpaw hopscotch along with it. And so we basically have this tropical custard apple growing up here all, all the way up into like zone five, uh, it, giving us this, this fantastic fruit and this gorgeous tree. It has these huge lobed green leaves that are tropical. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful landscape. Now, traditionally around here, it grows wild in our woods as patches. So it's, it grows in the understory, in the shade, but usually it doesn't grow very tall and it spreads out and doesn't really fruit unless it has sun. But when you take a good select variety of a pawpaw and you put it out into full sun, it grows into this beautiful pyramid-shaped tree, about 15 or 20 feet tall, uh, very carefree, has a deep taproot, so it can get that water down low, take care of itself very easily. It uh, doesn't really have pest or insect problems. The leaves don't get marred by disease. It has these gorgeous, I mean, if it's a select variety, it's the grafted variety or select variety, these are like large mango-sized fruits that inside have this gorgeous yellow custard that is reminiscent of banana and grape and mango, apricot. It has all these different wonderful flavors and this custardy goodness. It's dessert. It's dessert and a fruit.
0: I've only tried one, thanks to you. And that yeah, <laughs> that. was that, if I could get those all the time, that would be my favorite fruit. It was unbelievable how interesting and just delicious the flavor was. I've never had anything like it.
1: I know, and it grows here, um, you know, wild and easily in the landscape. So it's uh, another one that's Edible Landscape All-Stars, and it's ease, it's beauty, it's production. And the reason that we're not all familiar with pawpaws is it does not have a shelf life. So it's one of these, you know, you almost have to grow in your backyard.
0: Does it need cool weather and a lot of rain? It okay.
1: it it definitely likes moisture. Anything with that large a leaf is quite indicative of of a, a lot of rainfall. You know, you take you know desert species, uh, mesquites and things, very small leaves. That's related to you know how much water and rainfall there is. You go to a lush area like we are here in Maryland or the tropics, you get those big leaves. That's an indicator of a lot of rainfall and humidity. So when we observe the pawpaw and look at that large leaf, we're like, okay, this kind of fits into you know, an area with, with a certain amount of humidity. Of course, you could supplement that. Uh, you could water it. Now, it does have chilling requirements, so it's going to need to go through a period. I think the minimum for certain varieties is maybe 150 hours of dormancy. So that might exclude might exclude you down there in Southern California. I don't know. I know some people are growing a few varieties in Northern California, and the North West up there. Um, you know, it's not the ideal country for because it, it also likes uh, hot, you know, humid, long summers uh, to really get that full maturity. Again, there are certain varieties that grow um, in shorter season. Those would be NC1. And let's see, the the PA Golden, there's a PA Golden series, one, two, three, and four. So when you're looking at a catalog or you're talking to a nursery about pawpaws, uh, there's going to be, you know, upward of maybe 40 available varieties, grafted select varieties. If you're living, you know, in zone six or, you know, potentially zone five, you're pushing it uh, for, you know, for getting your fruit ripe, um, you would look to those varieties, NC1 and PA Golden, um, and who knows, maybe some nursery in your area might also say, well, look, we're having, we're getting fruit off of this variety. So you, you definitely don't want to just jump and grab, um, you know, any variety. Like, we're, I can grow almost every variety where I am. We're in the heart of pawpaw country, so the Mid-Atlantic, southern Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Ohio, uh, where we are here in Maryland and Virginia. Uh, and they, they even grow all well all the way down into parts of Louisiana. So it's got quite a large range. So it's definitely worth learning about and trying.
0: And what a treat to have that tropical flavor on the mainland of North America. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, there's not much that has it. Another unique favorite of mine is the che fruit, C-H-E, like, like che gabata. Um, It is a mulberry relative, which means it grows very easily and very well. Uh, and I, I want to say its history might even might have something that was discovered around our region here uh, in the mid-Atlantic and it is a mid-size uh, small fruit tree or shrub, and it puts out these these round red fruits, and there are seedless varieties. So you would like to get, ideally get a seedless variety, uh, which which I know Mike McConkey at Edible Landscaping uh, Nursery uh, has, and I recommend his nursery for many things. He, I think he ships almost throughout the whole season. He does a lot of potted plants, so he'll have a lot of these uncommon fruits. Anyway, if you can get a chay fruit from him, a seedless chay fruit, it is another exquisite, very beautiful, and this fruit's late in the in the season, so in the autumn, and it has a strawberry-melon flavor to it uh, and very sweet. So, again, another one of these curious, easy-to-grow plants that have uh, almost tropical um you know, flavors and, and reminiscences about them.
0: Do you know the Latin name of the chay fruit?
1: Oh man, I have trouble saying this one. Botanical name is Cudriana, C U D R A N I A. Tri Cuspidata. T R I Q U S P I D A T A. It looks beautiful. I mean I think it's a quite an ornamental small tree if you train it as a single trunk. Um, it kind of gets this umbrella shape. And then the fruits look like dangling, you know, Christmas balls. I mean, they're, they're gorgeous. Well, I
0: can't, I'm can't. i going to look that up as soon as we're off Skype. Yeah. So are there any other fruits or um, foods Oof. that you want to plan so you want to talk about today?
1: Oh, gosh, I could talk all day. Um, I, I find, in general, berries are easy to grow if someone is, is getting started in fruit culture. That berries Tend to be easier in general. You know, more carefree, more resilient, and uh, oftentimes you know less disease involved. Uh, elderberry is a favorite of mine. It's it's beautiful. It's ornamental. It's resilient. It's fast growing. Deer do not eat it.
0: Immune booster. Yeah, it's growing medicine.
1: Yes, and it grows in very wet spots. So a lot of times, if there's an area where things are kind of boggy and just you know nothing's growing well, I'll stick elderberry in there and really take advantage of that situation. It makes great wine. And, and you know, you go to the health food store and the section for colds now is Sambuscus this, Sambuscus that, it's, it's all elderberry. And it's very easy to grow, it's very easy to process, it's a copious producer, so it's easy to make medicine. Uh, and, and a very easy to grow. So that's another one of my favorite. It takes easy from cuttings, so it's easy to propagate, uh, literally almost just take it and stick it in the ground and it'll, it'll begin to root and leaf for you. So you could get that from a neighbor or from a friend. Or order it, you know. I've got a, a small list of some of my favorite nurseries that I would recommend after years of ordering from many, many nurseries. It becomes an art to realize uh, which nurseries do certain things well because, you know, it's not cheap when you start, you know, buying up certainly as many plants as I do, which is another reason I'm starting my own nursery is just to, you know, just to be able to propagate, you know, I've got thousands of dollars and of, uh, hundreds of varieties that I've invested in. So now I basically have the makings for uh, a nursery. So keep That's that in great. mind if you're How spending can... thousands of dollars
0: yeah. <laughs> on <months, though>. stuff. <laughs> I I, believe me, I'm, I'm heading in that back. direction. When is your nursery opening and where can they find you? Well, Online I'm, I'm... and in person?
1: Yeah, I am soft launching, so I'm I'm just beginning to, to put the pieces together. Um this year we're having a our first annual Paw Paul Festival here in Frederick Maryland at our homestead, which is called Long Creek Homestead. And that's going to kind of be an inaugural launch for the nursery as well, and then you know it's going to be it's going to be sort of more on the homestead style nursery. I'm not going to really be shipping plants around um I'm not going to have you know a lot of retail hours it's going to have to fit my lifestyle uh in our our home so I think probably what I'll do is certainly at events I'll sell trees I'll probably do Friday afternoon evenings as a as a as a general time. I want people to communicate with me, and that's kind of the cool thing about a nursery: is you can make it whatever scale you know works for you and your life. Find those retail outlets, whether it's events, festivals, things like that, and you know make another one of these income streams. You know, in permaculture, we talk about creating multiple income streams so that you're more resilient if one falls apart. And, I, you know, my nursery is just going to be another income stream to my consulting, my designing, uh, publications, um, you know, and things that keep me on the land, which is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to generate income that keeps me here on the homestead and close to my family and all my, all my, all my trees, all my babies out there.
0: You'll be surrounded by pawpaws, too, which will help. Yeah,
1: love it. Yeah. <laughs> Fuel be your a admiration. <laughs> You know, you're like in Appalachia. You know, I'm, I'm getting to be called what you call a holler, holler yeah. hermit.
0: <laughs> people will say the last we saw of him, he was wandering through the pawpaw patch.
1: That's right. And Latin. they'll say which one? <laughs> yeah, that sounds. That's my that's my design goal. So I'm, I'm working on. it.
0: Oh, it's so great to talk with you today, Michael. Thanks so much for spending this um, hour with us. And can you tell people your website and where they can find you and your book?
1: Sure. It's uh, Ecologia design.com that's a portuguese word for ecology so it's e c o l o g i a design.com and you know i put a lot of stuff on the website i put a lot of stuff from the book there so there's quite a bit of how to on the website certainly i've i've got the paul paul festival poster on there please please take that share that if you're in the region
0: and when is that what day is that uh september 17th if memory serves right in the center
1: of you know paul paul harvest season it's gonna be in our homestead, so there's gonna be lots I mean, even though I'm calling it a Paw Paw Festival, it's really gonna be a celebration of all the different things happening there in the fall. You know, I'm sure there'll probably be chafe roots and you know, all kinds of, our food forests and everything will be will be open for people to walk through. We'll we will finished our circular straw bale house. You know, it's kind of this this budding, evolving, you know, permaculture homestead, woods, creeks. I mean, it's it's a magical little land here. So we're going to be for all ages. We'll do a bunch of stuff with kids. You know, it's just going to be fun. Plus, you know, you can try pawpaws. We'll make pawpaw ice cream. We'll figure out all these different things to do with pawpaws. Yeah, so, it, it, you know, if you're in the area, please come. And if not, you know, hopefully we'll be doing it, you know, each year, create a sort of a cultural tradition here
0: so great well thank you so much for sharing your knowledge today
1: was that an hour
0: yes can you believe it i could talk about plants for hours
1: i know me too (laughs) i I get a chance to and it's nice when you find someone else who's who's into it thanks for allowing me i'm always wanting to you know spiel about all of this it it helps to get it out
0: i know it's so fun thanks so much michael
1: yeah thanks jill (laughs) bye-bye
0: You've been listening to a Sustainable World Radio podcast. You can find us online at sustainableworldradio.com and also on iTunes. For more information about permaculture and ecology, visit the Sustainable World Media YouTube channel, where you'll find videos about permaculture, aquaponics, organic gardening, rainwater harvesting, and much, much more. Sustainable World Radio is a listener supported program. If you like what we do, please consider making a donation to the show. I'm your host and producer, Jill Cloutier, and thank you so much for listening.